Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to read the whole of this chapter together. We're going to also turn to the book of Romans afterwards, Romans chapter 5. First of all, we read from Genesis chapter 3 and the whole chapter. If you're visiting with us, we've been making our way through these first three chapters of Genesis, uh, crucially important chapters, foundational chapters for the whole Bible, of course, the very first chapters of the Bible, uh, also foundational truths for our lives as human beings, as believers, uh, knowing where we have come from, knowing what has gone wrong in this world, knowing the relationship that we can have with our Creator. All of it is here for us in these first chapters of the Bible. Uh, we'll be, God willing, spent today in Genesis 3 and, and, and next week as well. Possibly that will then bring our series to a close. But today we're going to study uh, most of this chapter together, Genesis chapter 3. And so we read together the whole chapter. Let's hear God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between, her off between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. If you keep your place there in Genesis and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 12 uh, through to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is God's truth. Well, please turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're studying this morning uh, from Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 to 24. Genesis 3, verses 9 to 24. And boys and girls, if you, if you got the, the sheet through on WhatsApp, uh, you'll see there's a verse there. We haven't heard that verse read this morning yet from God's word. But if you're listening carefully, uh, you'll hear how that verse applies to what we're thinking about from Genesis this morning. So Genesis 3 verses 9 to 24. Well, it's already started. The finger pointing, 
the accusations, the question that everyone seems to want answered, who's to blame? Two weeks ago, Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced that an independent public inquiry into his government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, an independent inquiry will begin in the spring of next year. But some people can't wait that long. And last week, maybe some of you heard and saw the Prime Minister's former advisor, Dominic Cummings, sounding off on national TV about all the mistakes that the government allegedly made and all the lies that they allegedly told. Whilst the government's handling of the pandemic no doubt does need examined in due course, hardly a week goes by that some politician or some party isn't calling for a public inquiry into something or other. And whilst we might sometimes question the merit or motive of that at times, it reminds us that there is a deep desire within human beings for justice. There is a desire within us for crime to be punished and for wrongdoers to be dealt with. Unless, of course, we ourselves happen to be the wrongdoers, then perhaps we're not so keen. Well, Genesis 3 describes not a public inquiry as we know it, but a divine inquiry, a divine assessment of what has gone so badly wrong in our world. Last week, we studied the first eight verses of Genesis 3, and we saw how Satan possessing or, or somehow taking the form of a snake uh, tempted our first parents into sin. Uh, we saw the immediate sense of shame that Adam and Eve felt, how they immediately hid from the Lord God. They heard him walking in the garden in the cool of the day, but they wanted nothing they, they couldn't bear to be in his sight because of their shame. And so they try to hide from God. And in Genesis 3 verse 9, God begins his inquiry into this incident. He calls out the man, Adam. And he says to Adam, where are you? Where are you? And of course, God knew very well where Adam was. This was, in a sense, a rhetorical question. It was not so much a question about where Adam was physically. It's a question about where Adam now stands spiritually before God. Sin has entered into the world. And God's inquiry into what has happened exposes the dire consequences of that sin. Consequences that, of course, we still live with today. I want to think, first of all, this morning about how our sin brings separation. Our sin brings separation. In verses 9 to 13, God questions Adam and Eve about what they have done. Look how Adam answers in verse 12. Verse 12, Adam says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Notice Adam does not describe her as his wife. He describes her as the woman whom we see that something drastic has changed between them. In fact, friends, something has died. Something has died between Adam and Eve. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, when God commanded Adam not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said that in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, of course, Adam and Eve did not physically die on the spot when they ate the fruit. Their hearts did not stop beating. Their eyes didn't shut. But we need to understand that what the Bible teaches us 
is that death includes far more than simply a body no longer working. The Bible teaches us, friends, that death is about separation. It's about change in our relationships and even change within ourselves. As we think about sin, the, the, the separation that our sin brings, first of all, we think about the fact that there is separation now between us and God. There is separation between us and God. We thought a bit about this last week, but again, notice chapter 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We see how having sinned, Adam and Eve can no longer stand to be in God's presence. It's not even just that they can't be, it's that they don't want to be. They know themselves to be impure, unholy, and sinful. And whilst God does not stop showing love and grace to Adam and Eve, despite their sin, as, as we'll see, nonetheless, friends, God makes sure that Adam and Eve cannot simply wander back into his presence. If you look at the end of verse 23, at the end of the chapter, it says, The Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. Not only are Adam and Eve sent away from God, they are, they are driven away from God. And the word there is also used later in the Old Testament to describe God driving out the nations of Canaan before the people of Israel come into the promised land. Point is, friends, as, as Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says, speaking of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. God is sinless and perfectly righteous and perfectly good. We are the opposite. We are sinful, unrighteous, capable of good, but wicked in our nature. And so there is this inevitable and necessary separation between God and man. Adam's sin, friends, did bring immediate death, the death of this perfect relationship between God and his image bearers. And of course, that separation still exists. This is the tragedy and the frustration and the hardship of human existence that though we are made by God and for God, we cannot in our nature be with God. Instead, human beings try to ignore God if you want to kill conversation dead in your staff room or office tomorrow morning, you only, you only need to change the topic of conversation from the small talk about the weather or the Champions League final to what people think about God. Just throw out a question about God and most likely people will go very quiet or get very awkward or embarrassed. And that's not to say, of course, that there aren't times and opportunities that we should take to speak to people about our faith in God and about the gospel. But if you were just to throw it out there in the midst of small talk conversation, there would probably be stunned silence. This is also why people devote their lives to someone or something that they feel is, is big enough and important enough to give meaning to their lives. Uh, when public figures retire or pass away, like the Duke of Edinburgh a few weeks ago, uh, you sometimes hear it said that they devoted their lives to 
with their families or public service or their communities. And of course, those things are, are worthwhile and respectable and commendable. But without a relationship with God, repaired and restored friends, those are just attempts to fill an aching void in our lives. And so our sin brings separation, first of all, between us and God. But our sin also brings separation between one another as human beings. Separation between one another. I've mentioned already the blame shifting between Adam and Eve. Adam's behavior is particularly uh, shameful here. He, he throws his wife under the bus, as we would say. Uh, ladies, imagine standing there as Eve, listening to your husband put all the blame on you. What must that have done to their relationship? Imagine the damage control that would have had to have been done in the weeks to come. The trust between the man and the woman died. Their relationship, their friendship in terms of its innocence and its beauty and purity died and had to be rebuilt. When the man and the woman sewed fig leaves, those skimpy, inadequate coverings that we looked at last week, the only people they were hiding from were each other. They couldn't look at each other. Death, you see, friends, is about far more than the end of a physical heartbeat. It's the separation of human hearts on a spiritual and emotional level. You've maybe heard people use the phrase, maybe about an employer and an employee, or about two friends, or, or even about a married couple. The relationship just died. And they're not talking about someone passing away. They're talking about people going their separate ways. Friends, death is separation and death reigns in human relationships all around us. Again, just look at the antics of the Prime Minister's former advisor this past week. Uh, once so tight with the Prime Minister and his colleagues and now raining down hellfire on them. Look at the attention that Prince Harry and his wife have received the last few months because of the very public separation between them and the rest of his family. And those things are tragic and they're, they're multiplied in, in a million different examples in everyday lives of men and women. And it's not how things are supposed to be. But death reigns in our relationships with one another. And then the last way that our sin separates is that there is separation within ourselves as individuals. Separation within ourselves. There is conflict and pain within each individual person on this planet. God says to Adam in verse 19, you are dust and to dust you shall return. And he's speaking ultimately there, of course, about Adam's physical death, which did come, albeit hundreds of years later, and which will come for all of us someday if Jesus doesn't return first. And which will lead to eternal agony if we are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. But friends, make no mistake, for many people that agony has already begun. They're already separated from God and separated from others and they're not at peace within themselves. And even sometimes as Christians, there can be an element of this remaining in our own lives. It's why we see identity crises of one kind or another in our society today, be it sexual identity, gender identity, national political identity, whatever it is. 
This also partly explains the, the mental pain, the pursuit of entertainment or pleasure of one kind or another, whether it's sexual pleasure or making money or, or a drug and just escape that marks human existence today. People put all their hope in those things. People pursue those things and are disappointed and separated within themselves. We are violent, we are selfish, we are lustful, we are deceptive, we are addicted, we are anxious, we are unfaithful, we are lost, we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Sin separates us, friends, not just from God, from each other, but it also creates this conflict and separation even within ourselves. These things are grave. These things, this, is a, this is a heavy word. But these things are so vital to know, friends, so that we can make sense of the world that we're in and so that we can make sense of our own human hearts. Our sin brings separation. But secondly, our sin brings suffering. Our sin brings suffering. From verses 14 to 19, God deals with each of the three people involved in the fall in the order in which they sinned. And so first of all, in verses 14 to 15, God turns to the serpent. Uh, verse 15 is such an important verse that we're going to take a whole sermon in itself, God willing, next week to look at verse 15. But in verse 14, God curses the serpent. He curses the snake. And this word curse is very important in the Bible. Uh, sometimes today when people talk about uh, a curse, you know, they maybe mean a, a bad word that someone says, a curse word. Uh, in the Bible, this word curse, when God curses someone or something, uh, in a sense, it means that he entirely removes his goodness and his grace from them. There is no possibility of, their, of them thriving or blossoming or flourishing. And it's important to notice, friends, that God curses the serpent and he curses the ground, but he does not curse Adam and Eve. He does not curse Adam and Eve. He describes for Adam and Eve the pain and suffering and punishment of their sin, but he does not curse them in the same way that he curses the serpent. Look at verse 14, God's words to the serpent. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now we might wonder why all snakes get God's curse put upon them in this way. After all, as I tried to explain last week, it was, it was Satan, it was the devil, the evil one, somehow possessing and using a snake to tempt Adam and Eve. And so you might think, is it really fair then that all snakes share in this curse? We might also wonder why it is, why is it a curse for a snake to go on its belly? Does this mean that snakes used to have legs? Were they very different physically before all of this? What does all of this really mean? Taters are actually divided on whether snakes were physically different before the fall or not, but I don't think it actually really matters. What God is saying here is that from now on, the fact that snakes slither on their bellies along the ground will be a reminder to human beings of the low position that Satan is in, spiritually speaking. Snakes are not demon-possessed or, as far as I know. They're not particularly wicked creatures in one sense, though personally I prefer to keep my distance from snakes. 
But in fact, they are, in a sense, the lowest of creatures. They slither along the ground, eating the dust, in a sense. And that is a reminder to us, friends, every time that we see it, of Satan's ultimate position before God. He is beaten. He is cast down. He will, in the end, eat dust, so to speak. Because eventually a son will be born in the line of Adam and Eve who will utterly defeat the evil and death that Satan brought into the world. But more on that next week. And so boys and girls and, and men and women as well, every time you see a snake slithering along, maybe on your TVs or at a zoo or maybe in, even in real life, remember, that's a reminder to us that our enemy, the devil, is defeated and he is doomed to the lowest place. God then turns to the woman. He says in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Eve looked at the tree and thought it would be so pleasant. Her sin with the tree leads to great pain. And that it actually brings pain in the most personal and profound aspect of a woman's existence, bringing new life into the world. And God also describes the impact that sin will have on the marriage of Adam and Eve. If you look at verse 16, your desire, he says to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that phrase, your desire, uh, it's a rare phrase, but it's also used in Genesis 4 verse 7 to describe Cain being controlled by his sinful desire to murder his brother. There are plenty of desires between a man and a wife that are perfectly good. But what God is saying here is that the woman, having successfully led her husband into sin once, she's going to have this ongoing desire to control and manipulate him again in future. And the man's response to that sinfulness will be further sin, to be harsh, to be overbearing to forcibly rule over his wife in an unkind and unfriendly way. Now, friends, it's very important to understand that God is not saying that this is how things should be between a husband and a wife or between any other people. That's not how it should be. But God is, God is not saying that any of this is good. But what he's saying is that this is how things will be as a result of the sinful nature that is now in Adam and Eve. And as we look over human history, we see that generally speaking, this has been the pattern. The temptation for men in a very general sense is to be harsh, to be chauvinists, to treat the woman as inferior or only there to meet all his needs. And likewise, the temptation for a wife is to be controlling and to be less than upfront with their husbands in certain ways. All of this, of course, can be overcome through the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. And a Christian marriage, by God's grace, should less and less resemble what is described here. But what's true in marriage is true in other relationships as well. Friendships become strained. Good neighbors become bad neighbors. Resentment becomes violent. Sometimes even wars are fought. And then God turns to the man. He says in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. This is another aspect of the, the separation that's now in our world. We're, we're also separated, in a sense, from creation. There's, there's not harmony. There's not peace even between human beings and creation. Every time you're weeding your garden and prick your finger on a thorn, you're reminded of this. One writer says, it's as if creation itself, degraded and defiled by human sin, is fighting back enraged that its beauty has been marred. God says to Adam in verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Despite all the advances in technology, despite all the cost-saving and energy and time-saving devices that we've come up with, the fact remains that work is hard and we're yet to find a way to instantly zap good food onto our plates without somebody doing the hard work of presenting it to us. In fact, there was a program on TV this past week about all the, the danger and harm that heavily processed food is doing to our diets. And, and the, the quicker we want our food to appear, the less good that food is likely to be for us. Hard work is involved in every meal. And as we've said before, work itself is, is not a punishment, but the sweat and pain and effort of work is. And so we see here, friends, how God's punishments for our sins strike at the, the very heart of human existence. Bearing children, doing a day's hard work, preparing a good, nutritious, delicious meal, they're all impacted by our sin. You can't, uh, you can't live a day in this world without having clear evidence put in front of you that the world is ruined. There are still good things to enjoy in this world, but there is no escaping the, the stain and the pain that exists in this world. And there's no way for us to regain what we've lost. God says very clearly to Adam, dust you are and to dust you will return. We are all headed in one direction and one direction only. And that's back into the ground. And yet, friends, for all of that, I wonder, do you notice in this chapter a great restraint in God? Do you notice, even in the midst of all of this, concern from God, love from God, grace from God, God doesn't come and burn Adam and Eve to a crisp on the spot for their sin. He doesn't drive them away without speaking to them. The very fact that God speaks to them at all and what he speaks to them shows that there is hope, that somehow there is still the prospect of everything being put right. And so although our sin brings separation and our sin brings suffering, Thirdly and finally this morning, I want you to see that our God, our God brings the hope of salvation. Our God brings the hope of salvation. And there are two things that God does at the end of this chapter that give hope to Adam and Eve and to all of us. First of all, God covers their shame. God covers their shame. If you look at verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Uh, we've mentioned already the, 
the useless, the almost useless little fig leaves that Adam and Eve used to try and cover their sin, uh, their shame rather. But the coverings that God provides uh, completely cover Adam and Eve. They properly cover them. Uh, the word there for garments means shirt or tunic, something far more substantial and protective, a proper covering. Friends, God does, what Adam, God does for Adam and Eve what they were unable to do for themselves. He covers up their shame. And then also, God guards the way back. God guards the way back. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now, on one level, this is part of the punishment of God on Adam and Eve, that they, they cannot stay in the garden, the special dwelling place of God on earth. They couldn't enjoy life with God like they used to do. But at the same time, friends, God drives them away from the garden for their own good. Because if Adam and Eve were to eat the fruit of the tree of life, they would live forever in this fallen, shameful, broken, sinful state. There was nothing magical about the fruit of the tree of life. It was just a tree. It had fruit like every other tree, but it was what that fruit represented. The choice to stay as you are and to live forever as you are. And if Adam and Eve were to eat of that tree, they would be choosing to stay broken, stay in their selfishness and their separation from God and each other forever. And that would be even worse to stay alive, but to stay sinful forever. The thought of no longer being physically alive scares most people more than anything else. Most people would probably rather die at 100 than at 50 or 60 or 70. And whilst Christians, of course, we cherish life and we preserve life because it is the image of God, it is, it is precious, we also need to be realistic about human life. It is a shadow of what it is supposed to be. It is fleeting. It is imperfect in every way. Our bodies fail us, our minds fail us. We let each other down, we lust, we lie, we get angry, we fight wars, we're destroying the planet, we're unhealthy. No amount of vitamins and supplements and everything, all the other precautions we take to try to stave off old age, none of them work. Would we really want all of that to go on and on forever? Weakness, sinfulness, separation, suffering. God doesn't allow it to go on forever. He drives away the fallen man and the fallen woman so that they cannot eat from the tree of life. But again, look at verse 24. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way, to guard the way to the tree of life. This is crucially important, friends. Adam and Eve are driven away from the garden and from the tree of life. But there is still a way to the tree of life. It's blocked off. It's guarded. 
by a flaming sword, no less, by these powerful angelic beings, the cherubim. But the way to the tree of life still exists. The Garden of Eden was the dwelling place of God on earth with human beings. There were two other dwelling places constructed for God on earth later in the Bible. There was the tabernacle, the sort of the portable version of the temple. And the tabernacle was there from the time of Moses all the way to the time of King David. And then after the, ta the tabernacle, there was the, the temple, that permanent structure of King Solomon's in Jerusalem. And both those dwelling places were entered, by the way, on their eastern side, the same as the Garden of Eden. Both those dwelling places depicted cherubim, these powerful angelic beings. There were pictures of cherubim uh, in both the tabernacle and the temple. There were pictures of, of trees as well. And Solomon's temple actually had two cherubim on the doorway into the main building. And there were trees all around and a lampstand shaped like a tree as well. See, friends, both those dwelling places were saying, there is still a way back to life with God. There is a way back into the presence of God. But just like Adam and Eve, you don't just get to wander in. That was the clear message from both uh, in, in the structure of both the tabernacle and the temple. You don't just get to wander in. Only the priests get to go in covered in robes and only on special occasions by God's command. But the message is there is still a way back to life with God. Fast forward to the very end of the Bible. The closing chapters of Revelation describe the new heavens and the new earth, a new paradise. And what do we find in that new paradise? Revelation 22 verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything what? Anything accursed. No more curses in this new paradise. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. In the end, there's going to be a new beginning. A beautiful new place, even more beautiful than Eden. A new dwelling place where God and men and women will be together again with the tree of life in the midst. And the question is, well, what changes between Genesis 3 at the very start of the Bible, when the tree is blocked off, and Revelation 22 at the very end of the Bible, where the tree is on full display and welcome for everyone to enjoy. What changes between those two moments? What changes, friends, is that someone comes who says, boys and girls, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus comes, and unlike Adam, he has no sin. And yet, like Adam, Jesus is driven out. Jesus was driven out from Jerusalem, the place where the temple was, the dwelling place of God on earth. Jesus was driven out. And he who had 
nothing to be ashamed for, was stripped naked and made ashamed and nailed to a cross. He who had no sin of his own to be punished took the punishment that our sin deserved. He who did not eat of the tree like Adam sinfully did takes the curse of dying on a tree for his people. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins on the tree. And because he has done that, friends, Jesus is our way back. Jesus' righteous blood is that covering that God provides over our sin. Jesus' death on the cursed tree is our way back to the tree of life, to a dwelling place with God. Jesus is the one who can end the separations between us, between us and our God, between us and each other, between us even and ourselves, who can make us whole and righteous and ready for eternal life. God came looking for Adam and he said, where are you? And he asks you that same question today. Where are you today before God? Are you ashamed? Are you guilty? Are you lost? Do you have this separation in your life that we thought about earlier? Are you dreading the punishment that your sin deserves? Or are you covered by the blood of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in the way of life that he has opened up for you? That, he sh that if he opens, no one can shut. Amen. Let's stand as we meet the Lord together in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is a second Adam. We thank you, Lord God, that though the, the way to the tree of life was blocked off for, because of Adam and Eve's sin, the way to that tree has been opened up again because of Jesus. We praise you, Lord God, that there was that third tabernacle, there was that third dwelling place, Jesus Christ himself made flesh who dwelt among us who was driven away from Jerusalem and from the temple and who took our shame and our sin upon himself on the cross. We thank you, almighty God, that by his wounds we are healed, that his righteousness can cover us and that someday, Lord God, we can dwell eternally with you in that new garden, that new sanctuary, that new paradise. Lord God, may we, on the days when we are brokenhearted because of our own sin, when we are brokenhearted because of the death of relationships and uh, the disharmony in our world, when we are brokenhearted looking out on the disruption and pain that exists all around us. Father God, may we be comforted and blessed as we think again of Jesus Christ, our second Adam, the Son of God, and the way of life that he has opened up for us. And Father, we pray that if there are any here today or listening in from elsewhere, who do not yet know Christ as their Lord and Savior, who are still living in the brokenness and separation of their sin, may they today cry out to him and receive the salvation that they need. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.